different companies have used technology to democratize and personalize entertainment, think Netflix, to democratize and personalize music, think Spotify. But no one has done that with art, and that's what we want to do, is we want to use technology to get to know people's tastes and connect them directly with creators. Cut out the middleman. Riley Clark is one of the founders at Fleur, a startup working to make art accessible for everyone. Riley studied art history at Stanford University, where he met his other co-founders. He also studied art at the American University of Paris and at University of Oxford. Riley worked as an underwater archaeologist, an ancient art conservation assistant, and in various roles at fine art auction houses. But his driving passion is making art more accessible, and he sees an opportunity to make that a reality with Fleur. How you doing, Riley? It's great to have you on the podcast. I'm doing well. It's good to be here. I'm looking at uh, blue skies and palm trees. Yes, I'm so jealous. I loved hanging out with you in San Diego. I, I always tell myself I can't go to the West Coast because I know if I go for too long, I'll never leave. Well, that's exactly what happened to me. I came out here for college and uh, I tried the New York art world thing for a while, but I had to come back. You know, I had to come <laughs> back. Yeah. So actually, tell us about that. So you did art history at Stanford. And then you also studied art in Paris and in Oxford. So what was it like getting an education from a couple of prestigious universities from two completely different parts of the world? Yeah, yeah. Well, you're right. They were so different, such different experiences. Uh, I feel really lucky, really fortunate to have been able to study at these places. Um, and Stanford is really like the most important place for my co-founders and I. Obviously, it's where we met. Um, I got my bachelor's and my master's in art history there. My co-founder, whose name is also Riley, also got his bachelor's and his master's in art history at Stanford. And then our CTO, Alema Fadisimanu, got his BS in human-computer interaction and a minor in art practice. So it's a really important place for us. The most interesting thing studying art history at a place like Stanford is that it's obviously a big STEM school. It's big for science, technology, entrepreneurship, um, these sorts of things. And that means there's a real divide between the arts and humanities and the world of STEM. And it's a divide that the art history institution, the art history department revels in. They love the fact that they're separate from the rest of campus. They love the fact that they don't engage with the rest of the community and they like to act like it's the rest of the community's fault. And my co-founders and I, back when we were at school even, we all butted against that. We all like to say that like the real opportunity was not making the art history community more insular, but it was like expanding interest to everyone else, right? Uh, my co-founder Riley and I started a group that was all about that. We ran arts events with the environmental uh, science program. We ran arts events with um, like young technologists who were engaging with art for the first time. And that was always way more exciting than just preaching to the choir. Obviously, we took that to heart and we've been trying to do that at a bigger scale. Tell us, tell us about Fleur and how you met your co-founders and the problem you noticed in the art world and what you're trying to do? Yeah, you bet. Well, the way that I met my co-founders is, again, kind of a great microcosm of this problem. You know, Riley and I, same name, same major, <laughs> a lot of the same interests. We didn't meet um, despite being in the same program until like years into it. It's such a small world, but it's still so fractured and so divided. And there's just no real connective tissue Turns out that's true in the academy, that's also true in the market, that's also true in the museum world, that's true across the art world, is 
there's just not enough connective tissue. And when we met, we decided this was a problem and we wanted to do something about it. And we spent many years trying to do different things about it. Fast forward, I finished my graduate degree. I moved to New York to work in a fine art auction house. It's not really for me. Um, I leave and within 24 hours, COVID officially hits. Uh, New York shuts down. Riley was finishing his graduate degree. He left the Bay Area 24 hours later, COVID shuts down. Alamo was finishing his bachelor's of science degree. He and his wife um, scurried away to her, fam- to her family's house in Hawaii. And we were all kind of quarantined and, and wondering, well, what are we gonna do next? The art world in the meantime was struggling. You know, it's still a largely brick and mortar world. Artists were struggling, galleries were struggling, and we decided, hey, there's something here. You know, we need to figure out a way to make use of this moment, make use of this opportunity we have to like, figure out what we want to do. You're at Fleur, you're basically realizing that art isn't accessible or engaging with everybody. And people like me who are interested in art, every time I go to a museum or go to an art gallery, I find it interesting, but I'm not educated. I don't know how to assess a piece of art. Uh, and I don't know how I can necessarily connect who I am to the piece. So what is Fleur doing to make art more discoverable to people like me? Well, that is such a great question because that is exactly the kind of approach we're, we're thinking about. You're exactly the kind of person who I think deserves to be served. Uh, in today's art world, if you're not previously from that world, if you're not maybe intergenerationally connected, you've, you're made to feel like it's not for you. You know, I've walked into galleries with friends of mine uh, at Stanford who have been made to feel unwelcome when they step into those spaces, humiliated when they step into those spaces. Like, how could they not know enough? And when they do express their opinions, their opinions aren't welcome. It's a pretty unwelcoming field. So surprise, surprise, people are disengaging. Young people are disengaging. Art is, in, it's inherent to our human experience. And yet we have a whole generation that is just being made to feel like it's not supposed to be there. And I think that's a problem. So what Fleur is doing to solve that problem is using technology to get to know people's tastes uh, and connect them directly with the right artists. We think this is important for a few different reasons. One, the conventional art world isn't really concerned about your tastes. They have curators, they have tastemakers, they have so-called experts who tell you what you should and shouldn't like, right? What is and isn't good. We're not interested in that. We actually take the position that you know what you want, you know what you like. You know, people in today's day and age, and especially people in our generation, you know, we're already curating our taste in music. We're already curating our taste in clothes, furniture, everything. Why not art? Different companies have used technology to democratize and personalize entertainment. Think Netflix, to democratize and personalize music. Think Spotify but no one has done that with art. And that's what we wanna do, is we want to use technology to get to know people's tastes and connect them directly with creators. Cut out the middleman. You touched on in the beginning, like art should be served to people like me and anyone who's interested, but might not be educated. And you know, I totally understand that because I guess from like a personal experience, I could see how art could be viewed as like an upper class type of thing or for people who are posh. And sometimes when you walk into an art gallery, you might feel a little unwelcome or intimidated. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, uh, it's just, what you're saying is so on the money. That's true for so many people. Like a quarter of Americans visit a museum every year, at least one. That's its own crazy multi-billion dollar market. 
And a lot of those people still feel like they don't know what to say. They don't feel comfortable expressing their taste and they walk into the museum. And the other three quarters of Americans who we're really thinking about as our audience as well, you know, they cite exactly those reasons as the reasons they don't go. It's pretentious. It's not for people like me. These are the sorts of things you hear when you talk about museums and galleries and the quote unquote art world. And I think that's a problem because art is for everyone. Not every work of art is for everyone, but it's for someone. There are why there are way more creators out there than like I even realized around the world, making all kinds of things that connect with someone out there. And it's our job to connect the two dots. It's also so funny because the experience you're describing is true for so many people, but it's also true for people like me. You know, I have a master's degree in art history <laughs> and I feel dumb walking into a gallery. <laughs> when we first started this, when we first got together, we connected with um, a collector and a, and, a, and a potential investor who has a multi-million dollar art collection. He's been profiled all over. And he says that when he walks into galleries, he feels unwelcome. <laughs> you know, it, it's the craziest system. It makes no sense. I'm happy to, to share some thoughts on like why it is the way it is, but it doesn't have to be that way. And it doesn't actually help anyone. It doesn't actually help artists. It doesn't actually help everyday people who want to connect with art. Yeah, no, we'll keep going. Why, why do you think we are in this situation? Why doesn't have to be like this? Well, I mean, the real reason is because the art market is still so largely dominated by brick and mortar galleries. Um, these are spaces that, first of all, most of them fail within the first two years. They are incentivized to move product quickly. So they hide prices and they sell to repeat buyers. They sell to people they know. Usually what this means is you have independently wealthy, intergenerationally connected people selling to other independently wealthy, intergenerationally people, oftentimes other professional art dealers. When we first got together, we started talking with artists about the problems they had with this existing traditional system. And an artist friend of mine told me he had his first show in San Francisco. It was a big deal for him. It was his first real step towards a professional art career. His friends were super excited for him, came into the gallery. Uh, they loved seeing their friends work on the wall. And they asked uh, the owner to buy the art at full price. The owner turned them away, turned around to her friends, and sold the same work to her friends for less money. What? And, and, and you laugh, but that is actually a pretty representative experience. Wow. Um, it is really insular. It is really about who you know and who you don't. Also, it's not a coincidence that the artist involved was Black. His friends were Black. Mm -hmm. The gallery owner was white and her friends were white. Mm -hmm. That is not purely incidental. Well, so speaking about that, I saw on your website, you, in a blog post, you had mentioned some of the ridiculous like disparities that are in the art world and just a couple of them. And I'll let you touch on, touch on more of them, but you'd mentioned that the top New York galleries represented 70% male artists and only 30% women artists. And those same galleries represented 80% white artists and only 20% artists of color. And the ridiculous analogy or comparison stat that you made to prove this point was 20% of the artists at the top galleries represented that year went to a prestigious university, Yale. So in 2017, Yale grads were as well represented at top New York galleries as all artists of color. Yeah, it's the art world is crazy like that. That was from a 2017 report by Artnet News. It's changed a little, but it's not changed all that much. And it's also only changed in the facts that galleries are now representing more artists of color, but they're not hiring more diversely uh, among themselves. 
they're not oftentimes selling to diverse collectors. Uh, I have no, I have another um, story from a friend of mine. Um, she's a really special collector. She also happens to be um, a middle-aged single black woman. She told me that she walked into a gallery recently. The gallery owner wouldn't sell to her because she didn't know her. Who, who are you? Who is your network? Uh, and when those questions failed, it came down to who's your family? You're single, how can you afford this? Who's your man? These are real questions that a real art dealer asked a real client who was interested in buying a work by an artist of color. Um, it's, a crazy, it's a crazy world. And these are exactly the reasons that we want to step in and use technology to create not just a fairer art world, but a more representative art world, an art world that actually reflects the diversity of the people who make and consume art, artists and art lovers. Because we don't trust the art world to make that change itself on its own. Every year, there's an annual report that goes out from UBS and Art Basel that surveys art dealers around the world. It's 2020, it's a pandemic. The art market is losing billions of dollars in value because it's so largely brick and mortar. And still, 70% of art dealers say that their top priority moving forward is existing relationships with existing clients. 70% business as usual. Compare that to 4% who said racial diversity, compare that to 4% who said gender diversity, compare that to 7% who, says, who said new technologies. This is crazy. They're not going to change. We have to change. Uh, and we have to imagine like systems level change. So when you're talking about system levels change, right, you're talking about this really unique application of tech and AI and algorithms that you want to introduce to the art world so that you can connect people's tastes with the right artists. And you called it like a Spotify or Netflix for art. Another thing that you'd mentioned on your website in a blog is how using tech and AI to make art more human might seem like a paradox because typically, not typically, but I guess sometimes tech and AI can make things feel less human. So how are you using this tech, this application of tech to make art more relatable and personally connected to an individual. And then on top of that, I guess, how are you making sure that these continued biases that are prevalent in the art world won't be prevalent in the tech you create? That's a great question. And I really particularly appreciate um, your last part of the question. And the real answer to that question is that's going to be something that we watchdog from now until the end of the life cycle of the business. I mentioned in one of those blog posts that what we have to do is we have to encode uh, these values into our technology. We have to actually encode these values into our product and our technology. Yeah, because again, what the art world does now is it, is it pushes up a pretty homogenous and pretty small data set of artists, if you can call them that. You know, if you go back to the top New York gallery rosters, that's a pretty limited data set and it's not terribly diverse. And when it is, it's oftentimes not meaningfully diverse, you know, it's not always going into uh, different hands. So the first thing that we need to do is we need to uh, create a more diverse and representative data set. So like 98% of the artists on our platform as of today are underrepresented artists. You know, more than 50% are women, more than 80% are artists of color, more than 20% uh, are out openly LGBTQ+. Um, that's the first part is actually having that data set. It's also having a diverse data set on the user side. You know, it's not just servicing the same people and the same kinds of people. The next thing we have to do is to figure out how we feed up a diversity of artists and how we 
you know, our thinking here has been that the exclusion in the art market has been deliberate. You know, you don't get to those numbers. You don't get to the situation we're at right now without like deliberate exclusion. So we have to be deliberately inclusive with how we program these things. That means uh, privileging things like identity in um, our algorithms. That means asking questions like, hey, is this something you're interested in? I was looking at our data from our users recently because I was interested. More than half say that, yeah, I'm explicitly interested in supporting underrepresented artists. Uh, more than 60% said, yes, I'm explicitly interested in supporting women artists. These are pretty difficult things to search for in the art world today. You know, um, if you walk into a gallery, chances are most of the artists there will be men. If you go onto a, an online platform, chances are most of the artists there will be men. I have some fun information about one of our competitors. Uh, I won't say their name, but they knew who they are. They're the so-called largest online marketplace for art. And as of 2019, over 90% of the galleries on their platform represented fewer women than men. 10% of the galleries on their platform didn't represent any women at all, right? So you're talking about a pretty homogenous data set and also um, pretty meaningless search criteria. Like that doesn't get better when you have to search for like gallery geography or price or size. Those don't mean anything. What people are really interested in are identity categories. Who do I resonate with? Why? What moods are these artists getting at? What do they make me feel? These are the things that really matter. And when I talk about Netflix and Spotify, that's what I mean. Our technology isn't purely trying to sell people art. It's trying to say, what do you gravitate towards? What do you like? Not what do you say you like? Not what should you like? What do you like? And then feeding them exactly that. For someone like me, I know what colors or maybe what concepts or things make me feel good or what I gravitate towards, but I wouldn't be able to put all the information or tastes that I have in my head together to be able mm -hmm. to say, you know what, this is what I want. How are you helping people like me who kind of know what they want, but don't fully know how to put that into like a statement, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that, 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 that's a great question and exactly our job. The thing that we're considering is how do you start? You know, everyone starts somewhere and the traditional art world's question to the answer, sorry, answer to the question, where do you start has been, you're born with it. You know, you're born into an art collecting family. You grew up around this. You know what to say by the time you're 13, right? That's not true for most people. Most people don't feel comfortable in an art history class. Don't feel comfortable asking questions in the gallery. Don't know where to start. That's our job. Um, the kinds of questions we ask on our quiz are meant to elicit real immediate answers, you know, do you like this or that? Which of these pictures do you gravitate towards? Um, mm. It's, to, it's try to, trying to cut past all that overthinking and say, well, what do you actually want? Like myself, you know, through my degree programs, I was kind of trained to like one specific thing. And it turns out I like something else. It turns out I'm actually a big fan of organic, natural, warm work. If you would ask me that just across a table, I would never have said that but it is in fact what I like, and it is in fact what I engage with. And that's what our technology feeds me, and I'm glad. And again, this is like totally oppositional to the way the art market works. The way the art market works is you have curators at galleries telling you what you should like. Uh, and then more often than not, you go through another intermediary, an art advisor or an independent curator or someone you trust who tells you among that work, what work should you like? 
you know, I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a private collection and seen that this was all picked out for you by someone. <laughs> you know, this was all picked out for you by a professional art dealer trying to sell you a vision of what's hot in the market right now. What I really love is when I walk into a private collection and I see that it's all personal. It's all eclectic. It's weird. No one could ever have put this together uh, just, by, just by, by a conversation. It's the kind of thing that you build up over a lifetime and it changes and it conflicts and it contrasts. And that's the beauty of art. And again, like this, this is something that other technologies uh, at other companies have done really well. Spotify does a great job of mixing and matching different songs, different albums, different genres. It's about like serendipity. It's about the kind of like weird, unexplained connections between things, not what some art market professional tells you you should like. So when you're doing this, you basically have two sides of the coin that you're attacking. You have the supplier side, which are the artists, and then you have the demand side, which are people like me. And this reminds me of a business case that I read about Uber when they started, which is like, I have to have the people that want to get in the cars, and then I have to have the drivers who will drive the cars. Which side do you attack first? And how do you go about the strategy of building that supply and demand? Well, the answer I'm going with is that the demand is there. Mm -hmm. uh, the demand is actually built into our human DNA. Um, and this is going to sound very qualitative and like, and like liberal artsy. I'm not going to apologize for that. <laughs> Art is the thing that we do as human beings. It's right up there with shelter and fire and music and entertainment. That's true across time. That's true across space. I don't care where in the world, when in the world you look, art is right there at the center except this version of the modern world in the last hundred years or so, when it's become a kind of exclusive pet project for uh, the independently wealthy, uh, usually concentrated in certain like uh, urban centers. But that's not what our human nature is. The demand is there. And the demand is there among an audience that the art market hasn't considered over that last you know, hundred years or so. It's there in you. You want to engage with creators. You, in the same way that you want to engage with music, it's just an inherent desire. Most of our users haven't really engaged with art in the past. One of them reached out to me recently and told me that, you know, they've never really engaged with art, but they took our quiz, they started matching with our artists, they started thinking about it, they sent it to their friends, they sent it to their family. And the next thing you know, this user is sitting uh, on his couch with his family during quarantine. Uh, they all have their artist matches in front of them and they're talking about art for the first time ever as a family. They started, they, they weren't born into that world. They didn't start in the gallery system. They didn't start in the museum system. They started with Flair um, because we were the first people to actually care about them and their tastes and deliver them something that was even close to it. That's the really exciting opportunity is that that demand is inherently there and we can kind of grow that and we can get people to share their passion for it. Um, the artists are kind of a different animal. You know, artists wanna make art. That's what they wanna do. They don't want to spend their time currying favor with a gallery owner who is going to sell their work for little money to other professional art dealers and then take 50%. They don't want to spend hours every day building out an online brand competing with every other artist and every other online creator. They want to make art and they want to share it and they'd like to make a living doing it. Our value proposition for artists is for very little time and no money you get to algorithmically match with people who appreciate your work all around the world, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if you do make a sale, you get to keep all of it. 
we think the platform is better with artists involved. So we want to scale artists quickly and we think that's how we do it. I love it. So on that note though, what's your, what's your business model if you're not taking a cut? Yeah, well, we're not taking a cut from sales because as it turns out, most people don't want to buy art most of the time. Like again, going back to our user data, most of our users don't want to buy art or maybe they would if they found the right piece, right? Very few people are actively looking to buy art who aren't already being served. But let me tell you, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. She's a, she's a major collector out in New York. This is uh, Victoria Rogers. We're publishing an interview with her on the website soon. Uh, I'll share that with you. But she was telling me that, you know, she she's an established collector. She's a trustee at the Brooklyn Museum. And she doesn't like to buy a work of art as soon as she finds an artist. She likes to discover an artist, sit with them for months, sit with them for years, figure out who they are, figure out what their values are, figure out what they're all about. And then at the end of that journey, maybe she'll buy. Our thinking at Fleur is rather than compete with everyone else in the art market for that small percentage of people buying art a small percentage of the time, we can be the place where people go to discover artists for the first time and engage with those artists over those months, engage with those artists over those years, re-engage, re-engage, re-engage. There really isn't a place for people to do that. And you know, when I say that we want to be the Netflix for art, when I say that we want to be the Spotify for art, I mean that literally when it comes to the scale and business model. You know, we're thinking about this as creating access for everyday people. So we want to charge everyday people in the form of subscriptions. You know, Netflix, Spotify fundamentally change the way that people discover and engage with content. And we want to do exactly that with uh, visual art. And you're, you're launching soon. Yeah, yeah, we have um, an open alpha out right now at fleur.ai, F-L-E-U-R.ai. But next month, we're going to be launching the next version. You know, we're going to be launching user profiles and artist profiles. You know, people have really liked that we've asked them about their tastes, that we've fed them artists they actually really appreciate with, that we've given them an opportunity to engage with art for the first time, and now they want more. You know, like a question we get is, okay, I got my match, what now? And we're building the answer to that question as we speak. And we're going to be launching some answers uh, next month. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for joining. I want to wrap up with one more question, which is what can our listeners, what can our audience do to help you out with scaling? Either if you need more, you know, beta testers, alpha testers, or getting the word out, or just becoming more aware of the issue in general. Yeah, well, I would urge listeners to go to our website. That's uh, Fleur.ai, or go to our socials to stay up to date for content. You know, we're always looking for people who want to engage with art. We're always looking for art lovers. We're always looking for new artists. We do better getting you, you know, the listeners, the people, what you want. So visit our website, take our quiz. Let us know what you think. Let us know if it works. Let us, let us know if it doesn't. Uh, we want to build something that you want. So please visit our website. Please visit our socials and let us know. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Riley. And to everyone listening, thank y'all for tuning in to this week's episode of the 501 Hustle. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow, leave a review. Thank y'all for tuning in and we'll catch y'all next week. Thank you again, Riley. All right. Thank you so much.